Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparola. The opening concerts of the season by the CSO on Friday, September 21st, Saturday the 22nd, and Tuesday, September 25th, see Ricardo Muti joined by bass Alexei Tikhomorov and the men of the Chicago Symphony Chorus in an all-Russian program on the first half of the program, Sinfonietta by Prokofiev, and after intermission, Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 13, Baba Yar. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on Sergei Prokofiev's Sinfonietta, a work lasting about 25 minutes. At present, I am in Sonsovka writing a Sinfonietta Prokofiev recorded in his diary on May 31, 1909, years before his name meant anything to the musical public. The idea for the piece came to him during an orchestral rehearsal in which Skriabin's Poem of Ecstasy was followed without pause by Rimsky-Korsakov's Sinfonietta. After Skriabin's elaborately majestic music, Prokofiev recalled, with its colossal layers of complexity, its maelstrom of confusing tempi, its gripping climaxes culminating in ecstatic outbursts, Korsakov's Sinfonietta appeared so small, so self-effacing, but at the same time transparent as water, and so lovely. It was a delightful little scrap of a child side by side with a monstrous giant. At that moment, Prokofiev decided that he would spend the summer writing both a large-scale symphonic work and a little sinfonietta. It came to me with blinding clarity that both kinds of music could be good, he wrote. Both compositional genres were valid. Work on the Sinfonietta proceeded smoothly. I had begun thinking about themes for the Sinfonietta so that when I arrived in the country, almost all the material was ready in my mind. Within a week, he had written out the third movement. His original plan was to compose a piece in one movement, but by the time he started work, he had decided to write three. And then, once he got going, he thought it would be a good idea to repeat the first movement at the end, strengthening the unity and bringing a fresh and original touch. But the floor plan continued to grow. When the contrasts between the second movement and the scherzo turned out to make them more seem like an opening movement and a finale, I decided to intersperse them with intermezzi in a style corresponding to the first movement. And so, in the end, Prokofiev wrote five movements. For his musical ideas, he was openly indebted to Alexander Cherepnin, with whom he'd studied conducting at the St. Petersburg Conservatory. Cherepnin introduced him to the Viennese classicists of the 18th century, and Prokofiev quickly developed an appetite for the music of Haydn and Mozart. It is the cut of their music, the shape of melodies, the clarity of textures, the lightness of touch that suffuses his Sinfonietta. Yet even so, there are many pages of the Sinfonietta where the music seems to bolt off in unexpected directions, settling on jarring harmonies and jumping incautiously between meters and tempi. Prokofiev has already found a way to meld tradition and novelty into his own personal language. Cherepnin played an important role in developing Prokofiev's musical sensibilities early on because he could discuss old and new music with equal understanding and appreciation. The score of the Sinfonietta is dedicated to Cherepnin.
It is that same fluidity of style that would eventually allow Prokofiev to compose such widely dissimilar scores as the savage and dissonant Scythian Suite of 1915 and the most famous of his classical scores, the classical symphony he began shortly afterwards. Years later, Prokofiev recalled that the Sinfonietta was an attempt to create a transparent piece for small orchestra, but the attempt was not particularly successful. I had not yet learned to write light, graceful music, and it was only many years later, after two revisions, that the Sinfonietta was finally whipped into shape. The two revisions were made in 1914 and 15, and in a more radical vein, in 1929, and in the process, the Sinfonietta not only reached its ideal form, but gained two opus numbers, first Opus 5, and then finally the unusual hybrid Opus 5 slash 48 that was meant to suggest the span of the work's evolution, the time in which Prokofiev grew from a budding composer to a renowned international figure. Prokofiev was always puzzled that his own delightful little scrap of a child remained so seldom performed after he became famous, whereas the classical symphony, written in the same manner, has been played everywhere. I cannot quite understand why the fate of these two pieces should be so different. It was Prokofiev himself who introduced the classical symphony to Chicago when he conducted the orchestra in 1921. This week's performance of his Sinfonietta, however, are the orchestra's first. Program notes by Philip Husher on Prokofiev's Sinfonietta. And now on to Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony Number no. 13, Baba Yar, the performance time around 61 minutes. In 1961, the young Russian poet Evgeny Yevtushenko was taken to a place called Baba Yar. My friend led me up and down those ravines, hills, and gullies where at time you could still come across a human bone, he later remembered. The story of what had happened at Baba Yar in September 1941 was not well known. Yevtushenko only learned that day about the tens of thousands of Jews the Nazis had killed. The official count is somewhere around 34,000 on this seemingly innocuous hillside in the span of 36 hours. Yevtushenko was overcome. He noticed that there was no memorial there, no marker to tell this story, to date this unimaginable mass execution, or to identify the dead. The next day, he sat alone in his hotel room and wrote a poem, Baba Yar, on scraps of paper. It began, There is no memorial above Baba Yar. The steep ravine is like a crude tombstone. Yevtushenko's Baba Yar was published in September 1961 in Literaturnaya Gazeta. It caused a furor, and Yevtushenko received countless telegrams and letters of protest from across Russia because this was the first poem to appear in the Soviet press exposing continual anti-Semitism and confronting one of the country's darkest moments. One day early in 1962, Yevtushenko received a phone call from Shostakovich, to whom he had never before spoken, asking permission to set Baba Yar to music.
The name Shostakovich had meant something eternal to Yevtushenko since he was a child. He was touched to have the support of this courageous artist, and he gladly agreed to have his poem set to music. Shostakovich then admitted that the score was already finished and asked the poet to come to his apartment at once. There, Yevtushenko listened as the composer played his score at the piano, singing its incantory melodies with a hoarse and haunted voice. When he came to the line, I feel that I am Anne Frank, Shostakovich wept. The music Yevtushenko heard that day captured what he imagined as he wrote the words. It was an extraordinary and uncanny experience. By some magic telepathic insight, Yevtushenko later recalled, Shostakovich seems to have pulled the melody out of me and recorded it in musical notation. His music made the poem greater, more meaningful, and powerful. In a word, it became a much better poem. Like Yevtushenko, Shostakovich was not Jewish, but he had grown up in a home where anti-Semitism was abhorred. As a boy, he refused to repeat popular anti-Semitic jokes, but he was not yet prepared to take a public stand. His outrage and anger burned quietly. He eventually broke with close friends because of hateful things he heard them say casually. In the plight of the Jews, recorded down through history, Shostakovich recognized a central theme of his own work, the lone individual raging against the indifference and insensitivity of humanity. Several works composed immediately after the war, the first violin concerto, the song cycle from Jewish folk poetry, and the fourth string quartet expressed his compassion for the Jews and reflected his discovery of Jewish folk music with its unique expression of despair cloaked in dance music, laughter through tears, as he put it. More than a decade later, when he read Yevtushenko's poem in the newspaper, he immediately knew that he must address the subject of Baba Yar in his music. In March 1962, Shostakovich set the poem as a one-movement piece for bass soloist, male chorus, and orchestra. Scarcely a month later, he decided to use that music as the first movement of a new symphony. He picked three other poems by Yevtushenko, Humor, in the store and a career, and in addition, he asked the poet to write a new text specifically for the symphony, Fears. Shostakovich worked quickly with unusual urgency. On July 20th, he completed his 13th symphony in five movements, all for bass and male chorus. Later that same day, he took the train to Kiev to show the music to Boris Gemierta, a bass whom he admired. From there, he traveled to Leningrad to give the score to his close friend Evgeny Mravinsky, the conductor who had led the first performances of many of his works, beginning with the celebrated Fifth Symphony. By this time, Yevtushenko was under frequent violent attacks for his implication that only Jewish victims had died at Baba Yar and that anti-Semitism persisted in the Soviet Union. Shostakovich understood that, not for the first time in his career, he was courting political disaster. He had chosen to set Yevtushenko's poems as they stood, even though certain passages were dangerously inflammatory. He wrote to a friend, I was in absolute agreement with the poet's every word. Within a matter of weeks, 
Shostakovich heard first from Gmierja and then, to his amazement, from Mravinsky, both offering flimsy excuses for withdrawing from the premiere. Mravinsky argued that he would conduct only pure music and should not work with singers. Shostakovich approached other basses, and one by one, they too dropped out of the running. One night in the autumn of 1962, Shostakovich invited a number of friends and musicians, including the conductor Kirill Kondrashin, to his apartment. He read the poems by Yevtushenko that he had set to music and then played and sang the whole symphony. Two days later, he called Kondrashin and asked if he would conduct the premiere. Kondrashin readily agreed. Together, they picked a new bass soloist, and shortly thereafter, rehearsals began. The first performance was scheduled for December 18th, 1962. On December 1st, Nikita Khrushchev attended an exhibit of avant-garde art. He broke into a rage, railing against abstractionists and pederasts, arguably without understanding either word. Clearly, art was heading into dark days. On December 17th, the night before the premiere of Shostakovich's 13th Symphony, the Kremlin hosted a reception for Soviet artists. Again, Khrushchev ranted. He told Yevtushenko that he had no business raising the issue of Babi Yar and said that the music Shostakovich write was nothing but jazz and gave him a bellyache. The dress rehearsal was to begin at 10 o'clock the next morning. At 9.45, the bass phoned to say that he was too ill to perform. One last defection. The understudy was quickly rounded up and rehearsal began a few minutes late. Midway through, Kondrashin was called to the telephone. The Minister of Culture inquired pointedly about the conductor's health and finally asked whether the symphony could be performed without the first movement. The premiere was given that night as scheduled, although the program book did not include Yevtushenko's texts. The entire square outside the Great Hall of the Moscow Conservatory was cordoned off by the police, and a plan to televise the concert was scrapped. The official government box remained empty throughout the performance. An overflow audience recognized both the musical and social significance of the work, however, and the response was overwhelming. At the end of the first movement, the Baba Yar setting, the audience began to applaud and cheer. No review was permitted in Pravda the next day. The premiere was reported in one sentence as a news item. There was one more performance. A third was scheduled for January 15, 1963, but officials now demanded that Yevtushenko make several changes in the poetry to indicate that Jews were not the only victims, that here at Baba Yar lie Russians and Ukrainians. They lie with Jews in the same earth, as one of the poet's altered lines reads. Shostakovich was able to incorporate the most critical of the changes into his score without altering a note of music. But the symphony was seldom played after that. For many years, a performance given in Moscow 1965 was said to be the last in Russia. In January 1970, Ricardo Muti conducted Babi Yar in Rome with the RAI National Symphony Orchestra and bass Ruggiero Raimondi. It was the first performance of the symphony in Western Europe. 
Francesco Siciliani, one of Italy's most highly regarded and enlightened artistic directors of that time, succeeded in securing a microfilm of the Forbidden Symphony and translated the poetry into Italian himself. A tape of the concert was subsequently sent to Shostakovich, who was greatly moved by the performance and by the sound of the Italian language. He kept the tape in his library until his death. A few months ago, the composer's widow, Irina Shostakovich, brought the tape to Muti as a gift. Recently, as the significance of the 13th Symphony has been recognized, performances have become much more frequent. Conductors today choose to return to the courageous words that Yevtoshenko originally wrote and that Shostakovich first set to music. Unfortunately, his message is no less timely or urgent today. The first movement of the 13th Symphony, the setting of Baba Yar, has always overshadowed the rest of the work. In the West, the whole piece is known as Baba Yar, although Shostakovich apparently never called it that. When Yevtushenko heard the symphony for the first time, he was stunned that Shostakovich had gathered such seemingly disparate poems. It had never occurred to me that they could be united like that, he recalled. Here, the jolly, youthful, anti-bureaucratic career and the poem Humor, full of jaunty lines, were linked with the melancholy and graphic poem about tired Russian women queuing in a shop. Yevtushenko later claimed that this symphony gave him the courage to write Bratskaya G.E.S., a very long poem with many unexpected changes of rhythm and swift cross-cutting from one scene to another. Although Shostakovich did not set out to write a symphony, Baba Yar is not unconventional in plan. A large and powerful opening movement is followed by a scherzo, two slow movements, and a finale. The five poems are unified by themes that were dear to Shostakovich throughout his career, revolution and war, the individual's role in society, idealism in the face of easy compromise, prejudice, and intolerance. The settings are bold and spare, as if Shostakovich wanted nothing to detract from the impact of the words. The plain syllabic vocal lines and the powerful economy of the orchestral writing suggest the influence of Mussorgsky. Shostakovich had orchestrated Mussorgsky's songs and dances of death right before starting work on the symphony, and two years earlier he had prepared his own edition of Mussorgsky's opera Kolvanchina, something of which was transferred to the 13th symphony, as he later admitted. The male chorus sings throughout in unison or octaves, except for the final cadence at the end of the third movement. The music Shostakovich gives to the bass soloist is largely declamatory, with the directness and the power of speech. The effect is strong and unshakable. It is the voice of the soul. Shostakovich uses a large orchestra sparingly. Scattered, brilliant outbursts and terrifying climaxes seem to erupt from nowhere, but the most telling effects are often very simple, like the tolling of a bell with which the symphony opens and closes. A number of the most indelible moments are provided by single instruments, the tuba that opens fears, a bass clarinet solo in the final pages. There is no more haunting moment than the twining flutes that open the last movement or the sound of a single violin and viola playing together almost spontaneously who echo that same music at the end. 
Despite the enormity of its theme, this is, after all, a symphony of individuals. Anne Frank, who died in the camp at Bergen-Belsen, Alfred Dreyfus, the French officer wrongly accused of treason, a little boy trampled to death in Bialystok, a shivering old woman in the food line, Galileo, Tolstoy. After the 13th Symphony, Shostakovich did not compose again at the same pace. Although he wrote two more symphonies, they are introspective, decidedly inward works. He began to avoid the public eye more than ever and preferred to write pieces for his friends to perform. His friends, of course, included such major artists as Rostropovich and Oistrakh. In 1969, Yevtushenko sat next to Shostakovich at the premiere of his new 14th Symphony, a solemn and brave piece which confronts death and the departure from life and music. At times, the composer clutched the poet's hand, at the end of the symphony, Shostakovich sets a line by Rainer Maria Rilke, Death is all-powerful, it is on guard. Many years later, Yevtushenko said, Over people like Shostakovich, death has no power. His music will sound as long as humankind exists. Great art succeeds where medicine fails, victory over death. When I wrote Babi Yar, there was no monument there. Now there is a monument. Program notes by Philip Husher on Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 13, Baba Yar. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.